in the year 1519 in Leipzig, Germany, there was a cage match. A theological cage match between Martin Luther, the German monk who had recently defected from the Catholic Church, and his arch-opponent, a man named John Eck, who was considered the premier theologian of the Catholic Church. And to say the least, this was a heated and caustic debate because here are these two semi-trucks, these two freight trains of theological weight in a head-on collision over lots and lots of issues. But there was one issue primarily over which they drew swords, and it was the issue of the power and the authority and the supremacy of the Pope. In other words, who or what has the power and the supremacy? Is it the Pope who sits in Rome? Is he the ruler and head of the church? Or is it Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, who speaks and who rules through his word? Eck, the golden boy and cleanup hitter of the Catholic Church, argued, of course, for the authority of the Pope. Luther, the heretic and, and apostate from the perspective of the Catholic Church, argued for the supremacy of Christ through the Scriptures. And for one and a half days, Luther and Eck fought and jousted and boxed and argued for their positions. And as Luther defended his views on, on the Church and Scripture, which we would all agree with, by the way, Eck, get this now, Eck kept interrupting Luther as he debated, as he argued, kept interrupting him and saying things like this. That's Hussite. That's a Hussite doctrine. That's a bohemian heresy, he would say. And Luther didn't have a clue what he was talking about. He kept denying this accusation, refusing to be associated with Hus. All he knew is that to be a Hussite was a really terrible thing because it meant you were associated with a man named Jan Hus, this Czechoslovakian, bohemian heretic that the Catholic Church cooked like a goose about 100 years before this moment. And so Luther, in frustration, kept denying the accusation, again, refusing to be associated until that is in frustration. He, during a, a lunch break, he walked over to the university library to find out just who Jan Hus was and what it is that he had done and, and who it is that he was being accused of being like. And what he discovered about Hus was so significant that in one way or another, it affects our lives even down to this very moment. Here's what Luther said about his discovery of Jan Hus. I found in the library of the convent a volume of the sermons of Jan Hus. When I read the title, I had great curiosity to know what doctrines that arch-heretic had propagated since a volume like this in the public library had, not, had been saved from burning. On reading, I was overwhelmed with astonishment. I could not understand for what cause they had burnt so great a man who explained the scriptures with so much gravity and skill. He goes on. I came to realize that I had hitherto taught and held all of the opinions of Hus without knowing it. I observed fir how firmly Hus clung in his writings to the doctrines of Christ and with what courage he struggled against the agonies of death goes on to say, if such a man is to be regarded as a heretic, then I say no person under the sun can be looked upon as a true Christian. We are all Hussites, every single one of us, whether you knew it or not. And the reason why this matters, the reason why we're talking about this, the reason why we're talking about the Reformation and Martin Luther and John Calvin and Jan Hus is because it's the month of October. And you know that October is the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And by that, I mean that moment in history when the lamp of the gospel of grace was relit after centuries of darkness. Because on October 31st, 1517, a German monk named Martin Luther hammered onto the Wittenberg church doors a, a document that exposed some of the most tragic corruptions of the Roman Catholic Church. And in that moment, everything changed. 
Like, like literally, this led to the shifting of entire civilizations. This was one of those proverbial rocks in the pond of history, the ripple effects of which we still feel even down to this moment, 500 years later. And yet what we need to see this morning is that there were reformers before there were reformers. People who stood up for the supremacy and the centrality of Jesus Christ and the sovereignty of grace in salvation. Because although Luther, to be sure, was the one who pulled the pin of the Reformation, it was men like Jan Hus who built the bomb. And he gave his life for the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel. You see, the reason why I do this, the reason why I preach biographies during Reformation Month is because I am jealous and I am anxious for you. I am anxious for you as singles and seniors, and fathers and mothers and grandchildren. I am anxious for you to keep the lamp of the gospel of grace always burning in your hearts, always burning in your homes. That we feel the weight of the fact that authentic, saving, radical faith in Jesus Christ is passed generation to generation through dinners, through conversations at the dinner table, and through prayers on our knees by the side of the bed at night, and by fathers preaching the gospel in their homes, and mothers teaching the word of God to their children and pleading with the souls of their kids. And so when I make a big deal out of the Reformation, it's not because church history is kind of my thing, but it's because I believe Reformation Christianity to be authentic Christianity. And if we love and stand for the things for which the Reformers loved and stood for, we will, like them, cause ripple effects into eternity. So what you're about to hear this morning will be a mix of theology, church history, and biography that I hope will unleash in you a zeal to be a new generation of reformers. And so it's this morning, the sermon is going to be divided up into three parts. Part one, I want to set the historical context for Jan Hus by briefly painting a picture of the grim medieval world in which Jan Hus lived and died. Part two, I want to give you an abbreviated biography of a man who is not only a personal hero of mine and whose pulpit I personally stood, but who, a man whose courage and passion for the scriptures is worthy of our imitation. And then part three, I'm going to finish by giving one, just one implication. I had several. I reduced it down to one implication for how we too can face the loaded gun of a hostile culture and be bold and courageous and compassionate witnesses in a hostile culture just like Jan Hus was. So here we go. Part one, which I'm calling the murky medieval world of Jan Hus. The murky medieval world of Jan Hus. Because it's true that the medieval ages, that the, the dark ages get a bad rap in the minds of most people, right? And that's not completely undeserved. I mean, it's not called the dark ages for nothing. And yet the, medi the medieval times, they were, they were dark and they were grim, and yet not really for the reasons that most people think of. Because it's not that there was nothing going on during the medieval world, Middle Ages. It, it's that the most important thing, the gospel had been buried under centuries of tonnage of tradition and superstition by the Catholic Church. And you see, to understand just how fearless and shocking Jan Hus was and, and what he actually did, we actually need to travel back in time when we need to understand the religious life of medieval Europe. We need to understand what, what it was to live in medieval Europe during that time because there were three mighty constructions of medieval thought that we have got to get a handle on to see just how gutsy and radical Jan Hus was. Three constructions of medieval thought to understand how radical and gutsy Jan Hus was. Construction number one. Construction number one. In medieval Europe, the Pope was the head of the church, claimed supreme authority, 
And your salvation in Catholic thinking was completely dependent upon your submission to him as the one who ruled the nations. He judges all and he is judged by no one. That is clear, indisputable Catholic teaching started really, really popularized by Pope Innocent III in the 1200s. I'm not making that up. They said it. And the implication is, is that what the Pope and what the church said had greater authority even than what the scriptures said. In fact, you didn't even have a right to own a Bible, especially one in your own language. Should you be caught with one, and heaven forbid, interpreting the Bible on your own, that made you a threat and a danger to the Catholic Church. Construction number two of medieval thought. Number two. According to the perspective of the Catholic Church, eternal salvation was not obtained by faith alone in Jesus Christ, but rather could only be possibly obtained through the sacramental system of works and merit by the Catholic Church. In other words, Rome had, and still has, by the way, a different gospel. And by that I mean a false gospel. A false gospel in which your salvation depends in large measure upon the accumulation of your own works and merits and achievements. The problem is, is that the church had wired the process to down to such an art that nobody knew how good was good enough. And so people for over a thousand years were slaves to fear. See, what was missing in the medieval world was, was the soul-liberating truth that salvation was acquired by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Construction number three of medieval thought. Construction number three. In the medieval world, the pope and the church reserved the right to obliterate you off the face of the planet if you ever dared teach contrary to Roman Catholic tradition and, and teaching. You oppose the Pope. You challenge the traditions. You even dare question the teachings of the church, whether they're in the Bible or not. You have therefore, you have therefore forfeited your right to live. That, that's a fact. That is the perspective of every single person living in medieval Europe. This is just how it worked. So to believe or to teach or to preach or to live contrary to this, to, to say that Christ is and not the Pope is the head of the church, to preach that salvation is by sovereign grace alone, to question the established teachings of the Roman Catholic Church was to put a price on your head and a target on your chest, which is exactly what happened to Hus. And so that's the world in which Hus lived and died. And this brings me to part two then. Part two, which I'm calling an abbreviated biography of Jan Hus. An abbreviated biography of Jan Hus, and this will be divided up into four parts. And the first part of part two is what I'm calling the man from Goose Town. The man from Goose Town, the humble beginnings of a rebel priest. You see the years there, if you've got notes, 1373 to 1401. And you see, Jan Hus is proof that even nobody's can change the world, which is what he was and which is exactly what he did. He grew up poor and fatherless. Since his father died when he was a little kid, he was not from a cool big city like Prague, but from this dumpy rural little village uh, called Husenitz, which literally means goose town. It means goose town because the main trade of the village was, was raising and selling geese. In fact, his last name, Hoose, means goose. He is John from Goose, a nobody from a know-nothing village in which the primary export was raising geese. And you see, no one believed that anything good could come out of Nazareth. And no one believed that anything good could come out of Goose Town. And yet the providence of God in both cases proved people wrong. And out of Goose Town shone a great light. His mom seemed affectionate and attentive and mustered the money that she could to send him to the University of Prague, from which he obtained two bachelor's degrees and a master's degree. He actually was not a great student at all, probably due to the bad education that he received in this poverty-stricken village. Interestingly, he paid his way. He, he supported himself through university. He lived off of street performance, singing and performing in choirs. And his ambition, his goal after graduation, get this, was to become a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. That was his ambition. That was his desire. 
and of which his motives were less than commendable. You see, he was not so much interested in Christ or truth or eternity or actually helping people, but rather what he was very interested in was job security and nice clothes and a comfortable living and having power and admiration of the people, which apparently being a priest in that day could grant you. So he's not converted in any sense of the term. He's not a Christian at all. He's a typical Roman Catholic steeped in medieval tradition and theology. He is religious, but he is not regenerate. He's probably never heard the gospel in his entire life, and yet he is extremely eloquent. He's rigorously moral, and he had such personal magnetism and charm and charisma that in 1401 he was ordained as a priest in the Roman Catholic Church at the age of 29 years old. Now, here's the thing. When he got saved, exactly, it's kind of hard to say. It's hard to know when exactly that happened. But what we do know, get this, is that the very next year, in 1402, he was appointed by the Catholic authorities to preach at the Chapel of the Holy Innocents of Bethlehem, or just the Bethlehem Chapel, as it was called, which was just right in the middle of downtown Prague. It's still standing, and, and I have been there. And it's hard for me to kind of understand, like, why the Catholic Church did this. Because all throughout Europe, there were these little chapels, these little preaching chapels. And they would send priests there to preach every week, multiple times a week. This is different than the cathedral. There were cathedrals, and then there were these little chapels, and, which is interesting to me because essentially this means that the Catholic Church shot themselves in the foot. What I mean is, giving a guy a Bible and sending him to preach every week was inevitably going to weaken the Catholic Church from the inside out. Because should someone preach the word, hardly anyone did, and if they did, they were killed. But should they preach the word, you will inevitably rock the foundation of the Catholic Church, which, believe it or not, was not built upon the word. So in preaching the word, you will eventually undermine what the Catholic Church stood for, which is exactly what happened to Hus. I'm getting ahead of myself. Because something happened to this man. Something happened to this man to change this petty little playboy looking for the approval of man into this God-enthralled expositor whose electric preaching were used by God to unleash one of the greatest reformations, one of the greatest revivals in the history of the Czech Republic. My question is, what happened to this man? What happened to him? And what happened to him is one of those reminders to us of just of the absolute sovereignty of God over everything. You should have marveled with me for a second at the providence of God. Some years before that, in 1382, the, the sister of the king of Bohemia, the king of the Czech Republic, his sister married uh, King Richard II of England. Okay, so the sister of the king of Czech married the King Richard II of England, and it performed some kind of political alliance thing. I mean, who cares, right? But what it did was create one of those like sister city study abroad programs between the University of Oxford and the University of Prague. And because of this alliance between these two universities, get this, students from Czech started traveling abroad to study at the University of Oxford, which, get this, just so happened to be at that time exploding with the teachings and the writings of none other than John Wycliffe. Yes, that John Wycliffe, the Bible translator John Wycliffe, the fiery, lion-hearted John Wycliffe who preached the word of God. And, and so what happens is Czech students are going to Oxford. They get saved by the gospel. They get captivated by the writings of John Wycliffe, which they smuggle back into the Czech Republic and, or into Bohemia. And Hus eventually would get his hands on the writings of Wycliffe, which ignited in this unconverted priest's soul an indomitable zeal to preach the word of God. So what happened is something happened. He got his hands on the writings of Wycliffe and it pointed him to the Bible. And that interest in the Bible caused him to see things in the Bible he had never seen before. And all of a sudden he gets saved. A Catholic priest gets saved reading the Bible. Imagine that. And when he finally discovered the Bible, he said this about his own conversion. He says, when the Lord gave me knowledge of the scriptures, 
I did away with that kind of stupidity which I had been previously taught from my foolish mind. And this encounter with the sacred text of Scripture unleashed in Hus and in all of Bohemia, something that was absolutely massive. And we need to pause here. We need to, we need to pause here and, and think of and see two things that are worthy of our contemplation, worthy of our meditation from the life of Hus. Number one, the sovereignty of God in the mundane moments of life. This is not in your notes. And then number two, the soul awakening power of the sacred text of Holy Scripture. That's what we see right here in this moment of his life. The, the sovereignty of God and the power of Holy Scripture. That's what we see in his life. We build our lives on that. We build our lives on that. You see, we need to see that Anne's marriage to the king of England and a study of broad program between Oxford and Prague was not merely mundane moments in the history of the world, but the sovereignty of God disguised as mundane moments in the world. See, that is why church history is worth our time on a Sunday morning because we look back in history with a glorious vantage point, with theological 2020 vision, because what we see is that Christ using mundane, seemingly forgettable moments to advance the sovereign plan of salvation unfolding in the world. And what that does, you see, what that does, what church history does is help us see that even in the most mundane and painful and agonizing and confusing and unclear moments of our lives, God is there. He is there. Moving and guiding and governing and leading and loving and bringing every single event and situation to the exact outcome that he himself predetermined. Second, second, what we see here, this, this awakening in Hus's soul with the scriptures and the great awakening about to happen in Prague is again a, a powerful reminder to us that the word of God read and preached is God's instrument to break open the world. That's what this, that's what this shows us. Don't, don't you see, God has spoken. The God of the universe has revealed himself in his word. He currently speaks and changes people's lives through his word. You see, I fear that we've become too pragmatic in our day, too utilitarian in our day. What I mean is, what I mean is, we start to buy into the sales pitch of the culture that tell us that pills and pop psychology, that that has the corner on all life change and transformation. That just reading the Bible, they say, that's not sufficient to deal with the dilemmas of the 21st century soul. And strangely, slowly over time, we begin to agree with them. And the answer from Hus and from the Bible is no. No. No, no, we will not concede because all the power, all the hope, all the pleasure we need for all life change and transformation is found precisely in the text. Which brings us to part 2B. Part 2B, which I'm calling the Prague Awakening. The Prague Awakening, 1402 to 1408. So this, this collision with Wycliffe and the Bible awakened in Hus this unrelenting passion to preach the word. I mean, I mean, this is what the Catholic Church told him to do anyway, but now he was going to go about the sacred task as a man on fire, gripped by the very God he was called to proclaim. And you have to understand, this dude was an absolute lion in the pulpit. I mean, this was truth unleashed. The word of God roared from the pulpit in Bethlehem Chapel which quickly became filled with thousands of people, thousands of people every single Sunday, standing room only, people clamoring to hear the word of God. People were getting saved. Even the queen of Bohemia herself was coming in and listening to the word of God under Jan Hus's preaching. Hus's biographer, David Schaff, said this about Hus's preaching in the Prague Awakening. Listen to what he said. 
From the time Hus entered upon his duties on March 14, 1402, the Bethlehem pulpit was the chief center of religious attraction in Prague. Although well known as a powerful speaker, his religious eloquence, however, could not account for the lasting impression he made on the religious convictions of his generation and his becoming the chief prophet of his people. No preacher was ever more attached to his pulpit than Hus was to his chapel, and in the dark hours of his imprisonment, he recalled it with warm affection and in services even occupied his dream. In other words, this man loved his people. He loved to preach, and he was exceptional at it. Let me give you a sample of this man's preaching, because you need to taste what the people in Bethlehem Chapel got to taste. This, this is an excerpt, excerpt from a sermon. I'm not going to read it in Czech, obviously, but this is an excerpt from a sermon that he preached from Luke chapter 2 on the birth of Christ. And this is what he said when he got to verse 4. Verse 4 says, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among men with whom he is pleased. And here's what he preached to his people when he got to that verse. As you commemorate these things, dearest friends, rejoice that today God is born a man, that there may be glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among men. Rejoice that today the infinitely great one is born a child, that there may be glory to God in the highest. Rejoice today that a reconciler is born to reconcile man to God, that there may be glory to God in the highest. Rejoice that today he is born to cleanse sinners from their sin, to deliver them from the devil's power, to lead them from eternal perdition, and to bring them eternal joy, that there may be glory to God in the highest. Rejoice with great joy. That today a king is born unto us to bestow the kingdom upon us in its fullness. A shepherd to grant his eternal benediction. A father of the ages to come to keep us as his children by his side forever. Yea, there is born a brother beloved, a wise master, a sure leader, a just judge. To the end that there may be glory of God in the highest. Rejoice ye Wicked that God is born a priest who hath granted to every penitent forgiveness from all sins that there may be glory. Rejoice that God immortal is born that mortal man may live forever. Oh, dearest friends, should there only be moderate joy of the, over these things? Nay, a mighty joy. For indeed, the angel saith, I bring you good tidings of great joy, for today a Savior is born. I long to be that kind of preacher to you. And here's what Hus's biography said. It's no wonder that Bethlehem Chapel was crowded with people. Its pulpit dealt in no theological abstractions. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, was in the preacher's hand, a sharp weapon, wielded skillfully to lay open the sins and the subterfuges of the conscience. It was the word of life, offering the comforts of saving grace. Hus was a preacher to the age in which he lived, to the congregations which pressed to hear him. His messages burn with zeal for pure religion and sympathy for men. With his whole heart, he was a preacher. And through the preaching of the word, barons and counts and lords and butchers and bakers and every class of people were getting saved in Prague, blue collar, white collar. The power of God was tearing through the city at the speed of sound. And here's what he said in a friend of his about this particular awakening in Prague. He said, the people, meaning the Czech people, the people which walked in darkness have beheld the great light of Jesus Christ. 
The light of truth hath appeared to them that dwell in the region of the shadow of death. It is eagerly welcomed for our Savior's power by people, barons, knights, counts, and the common folk. I must tell you, dear brother, that these people will listen to nothing but the word of God. And that is what I want for you. So what this was, by all accounts, was a spiritual awakening. This was a pre-reformation. What this was, was Jesus Christ raiding the tombs of the dead in Prague and saving his elect with the gospel, which is exactly what I pray would happen through this church every single week. The problem is, or should I say, the good thing is, is that with that kind of proclamation of the word, what you inevitably do is step on the toes of the evil one, to wield the sword of the Spirit is to stab the tail of the dragon and to shake the structures that he has in place to keep the light of God's word out of his dominion, which in this case was, in fact, the Roman Catholic Church. In other words, danger and hostility and opposition are coming, and they're coming in a real hurry. And that brings us to part 2C, the stirring of the Roman beast. The stirring of the Roman beast, 1408 through 1414. Because everybody just knows. You just know that if you care about your own life, you don't go around poking lions with sticks and pulling their tails. Everybody knows that. And yet in his preaching, in his teaching, in his shepherding of God's people, that's exactly what Hus had begun to do. And like any other powerful moving of God in history, violent opposition was never far behind, which is exactly what begins to happen. And there were several kind of compounding factors that led to this inevitable clash between Hus and the Catholic Church that inevitably led to this bloody and violent end between Hus and actually the church that he loved and, and, and did not desire, that, that he wanted to, to help purify from the inside out. Several things, I'll give you two, two factors that led to a bloody and violent end. Number one, as I said, the expository preaching of the word was the deal breaker. His preaching was the thing that, that, that led to this inevitable bloody end because the preaching of the word revealed and exposed some of the most atrocious errors of the religious powers of that day. In other words, in simply preaching the scriptures, he inevitably clashed with the Catholic Church because so much of what they taught was either not in the Bible or it was against the Bible. And you want to know why they killed him? What, with the list of charges for which they burned him alive? Here they are. Here, here are a list of like seven or eight things. I'll give you three things that they burned him at the stake for. Number one, they burned him because, number one, he preached that Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church. They, they killed him for that. You understand? They killed him for preaching that Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church. They killed him. And yet, and yet, Ephesians 1.22, Ephesians 5.23, Colossians 1.18 said that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And yet, if Christ alone is the head of the church, then the Pope is not the head of the church. And if he's not the head of the church, then the entire system of Catholicism begins to come unraveled at the seams. Charge number two. They killed him because he said that the church is composed of all the elect who were chosen and predestined by God before the foundation of the world to be saved. They killed him for that. They, they killed him for preaching that. He preached election and he preached predestination. Hus was solid on the doctrines of grace. What some call Calvinism, he called biblical and the preaching of sovereign election angered the authorities because if election is true, it undermines the entire salvation system of the Catholic Church. Number three, third charge for why they killed him. They burnt him because he said, number three, the scriptures are the highest authority even over the Pope. They killed him for that. I mean, who's reasoned it this way? Okay, well, if the Pope what, if what the Pope says agrees with Scripture, then I guess you're good to go. But should they disagree, your highest allegiance is always, always, always to what the text says. Which again, this is a really dangerous thing to say because, because absolute submission to the Pope was just the expectation of the day. And, then to, and to deny that was to deprive yourself of eternal life itself. And so these and, and other kinds of things who's preached from 
the pulpit and it put a price on his head and a target on his chest. And yet there was a second factor that led to the bloody and inevitable end between Hus and the Catholic Church. Number two is that there was growing hatred and intolerance for John Wycliffe and anyone who quoted him, who read him, or who sounded like him in their preaching and teaching, which is exactly what Jan Hus did. I think he quoted Wycliffe in every single sermon that he preached. I mean, Wycliffe was Hus's hero. And in 1403, several years back, there was a decree that went out. It was not strictly enforced, but here's what, here's what the, the decree, the local decree in Czech that was, that was issued. It was that it forbid anyone in public or in private affirming the teachings of John Wycliffe. Public or in private, you're not allowed. That's strange. In 1410, however, things got real serious. They got real serious because there was actually an order from the Pope himself that went out through the entire empire that demanded the public burning of all of John Wycliffe's writings and books, which is a real problem. Because once they start burning books, do you know what they're going to burn next? Say it. People. They're going to burn people, which is exactly what they did. And Hus refused to comply. He, he wouldn't do it. To, to him, it made zero sense to, to wait to vilify a man whose only crime is, is in teaching the Bible. That, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, Hus literally thought, he literally said explicitly that he didn't think that the authorities had actually ever read the writings of John Wycliffe because if they had, he reasoned, then they would see, they would see that, that, that surely they would love him as a, as a, and admire him as a, a hero of the faith because he was just trying to be biblical. You see, Hus was at times blissfully ignorant and and endearingly naive. What I mean is, Hus actually loved the Catholic Church of which he was a part. He, he loved it, and he hated so much of what was inside it, but you see, but in being biblical, he was unknowingly rebelling and contradicting it. He was naive because he wrongly assumed that he and the church were on the same page. He, he thought that they all wanted the same thing, which was to exalt Christ through his word and to save sinners by sovereign grace and to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel. He thought that's what, what they wanted, and the Catholic Church didn't want any of that. And it wasn't long, mind you, before the phone in Rome began to ring. Local Bohemian authorities were sending reports to the Pope of this rebel priest stirring the pot in Prague, preaching Wycliffe doctrine, undermining the power and authority and supremacy of the Pope. And in response, the Pope, Alexander, I think it was 15th or 25th, I can't remember, who was a filthy and godless man, by the way, placed Hus under excommunication in 1411. And all excommunication means is basically like a grown-up timeout. It's like three, the, first, the first of three strikes before they burn you alive. And apparently he didn't take it very serious because nothing changed. He just kept preaching and stirring the hornet's nest, and they excommunicated him again. And yet, in spite of repeated excommunications and warnings, he just kept throwing rocks of truth through the blood-stained windows of the Catholic Church until they upped the ante in 1412 with what's known as an interdict. You know what an interdict is? It basically means martial law. Martial law. The, the, the Catholic authorities put the entire city of Prague on lockdown until or unless Hus would recant of his heresies. Anyone caught supporting, aiding, or abetting this now declared heretic would be also excommunicated by the Catholic Church. They had a no tolerance policy for dissenters. They, they, they did not negotiate with heretics, or should I say, with reformers. Even the priests of the city, the other priests of the city who, who hated Hus for various reasons, but they were even petitioning to get Bethlehem Chapel leveled to the ground and destroyed. But the problem is that Hus was, although he was hated by the priests and the, and the religious powers, the people of the city loved this man. They loved this man. He was their pastor and their shepherd and who, who loved them with the word of God. And so when people resisted and tried to defend Hus, they got their heads chopped off, like literally decapitated. And Hus knew that he had to leave. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't bear to, to bear that on his conscience. And so apparently there was a deal made that if he left the city, they would lift the interdict, and that's what they did. So he left, which he always regretted leaving. However, 
However, Hus leaves Prague in this self-imposed exile, but he didn't go into hiding or quarantine like some quivering little animal. Instead, he did the opposite of that. For two whole years, he goes on an absolute preaching and book-writing frenzy, traveling out all the regions of Bohemia. They never said he couldn't preach anywhere else. So get this, staring down the loaded gun of the Catholic Church, he has the most effective and impactful ministry of his entire life. He was like a man possessed, like Apollos or, or John the Baptist. He was the voice of one crying in the Bohemian wilderness. Fine. Fine, I can't preach at the Bethlehem Chapel. The world will become my pulpit. And the Bohemian hills were kindled in the flames of the preaching of the word of God. Who wrote this? He, he wrote this in a letter to his church while in exile. What fear, he asks, shall part us from God? Or what death? What shall we lose? If for his sake we forfeit wealth, friends, the world's honors, and our poor life. And I just want you to know, we are going to be forced to ask that question more and more. You understand that, right? That the heat, the temperature of heat, the opposition of Christ is rising in America. And we're going to be forced to ask this question, what shall we lose if for his sake we forfeit health, friends, the world's honors, and our poor life? He goes on. It is better to die well than to live badly. We dare not sin to avoid punishment of death. To end in grace the present life is to be banished from misery. Truth is the last conqueror. He wins who is slain. For no adversity can hurt him who iniquity has no dominion over him. It is better to die well than to live badly. And Hus was about to die very well indeed. Now, because I have minutes and not hours, let me cut to the bloody chase here. Well, on his itinerant preaching tour in 1413, he received official notice that he was to appear in Constance, Germany that next year. Apparently, the Catholic Church was putting together this conference, this council, where they were going to settle matters of debate. And he was to appear that next year, and there he would be given a trial, and he would be given an opportunity to defend his views. However, a fair trial where he would get to actually speak was at least the impression that they wanted to give him. But that was not to be. So that brings us to part 2D. Part 2D, the Council of Constance. The Council of Constance, 1414 to 1415. The Council of Constance was an absolute joke. This thing was a mockery from beginning to end. There was nothing sacred or, 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 or holy about this assembly whatsoever. And, and the Council of Constance was essentially assembled to with two main goals. There are two goals of the Council of Constance. Goal number one was to reduce the number of popes from three down to one. I'm not even kidding. There were three popes at the time, each of them equally vying, making claims to be the ruler and head of the church. I mean, the, the, the Catholic Church was an absolute train wreck at the time, and so the Council of Constance was largely conceived to put the Humpty Dumpty of the Catholic Church back together again. The second goal of Constance, however, was to purge Europe of perceived heretics, of which Hus was one. He was just one, one of, uh, of a list of people. He was just a footnote in this whole debacle. He, he was a minor detail, this mere administ administrative splinter under the skin that they just wanted to get rid of, which is how they treated him. And he arrived in Constance on November 3rd, 1414, amidst the, uh, amidst the streets being lined with people and cheering for him, celebrating his arrival. He buys the 14th, 15th century version of a of an Airbnb and stays in there for a whole week until, until that is, there's a knock at the door one day and he is lured out of the building and at which time he was illegally arrested and detained and thrown into a dungeon of a monastery next to the latrines and sewer pipes and they chained him up in a little cell that was made just for him. 
Apparently, you can find work orders, ancient work orders that described the documenting of, of materials to build this cell weeks before he got there. It was always meant for him. Now, I'm skipping stuff here, um, but uh, for eight straight months, eight straight months while the ecclesiastical powers did their thing and solved their little debates and carried out their proceedings, Hus slowly wasted away in this freezing dungeon. Eight months. At one time, he was in chains for 73 days straight. Suffering with hemorrhages, headaches, constant fevers, kidney stones. At one time, several times, he was on the, on the brink of starvation. They, they would starve him almost to the point where he'd ready to die, and then they would kind of bring him back. And so you see, like North Korea, they were going to grind this man and they were going to take this man's soul. And they were going to make him apologize for what he was going to say. Either way, they were going to kill him. But by golly, he was going to apologize forever double-crossing the Holy Mother of Rome. And I can't imagine what those months were like. He was 42 years old, my age. My age, in that cell, in chains, without food, freezing to death by filthy pipes in this in this little trail of, of, of human waste passing through, treated like a criminal, awaiting trial for the gospel of sovereign grace and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I, I can't imagine what this was like. And yet, miraculously, for whatever reason, they gave him his Bible to read. From it, he received great comfort and consolation in Christ. You can actually, there's actually letters that still exist that he wrote in this dungeon and they're jagged and scratchy and hard to read, probably because he had to write them on his paper, on, on scraps of paper, describing meditations in the Psalms, the comfort that he received for his soul from the Word. And he knew, he knew this was going to go one of two ways. Either he recant or he die. He, he either abandon his theology, which he preached, or they wipe him off the face of the planet. And yet he remained steadfast and unmoved. In a letter to a friend, Peter of Mladenovice, he said this, Therefore I say, that having hope in Christ Jesus, I am determined when hearing the proposal to withdraw to persevere in truth until death. He was like the martyrs of Revelation 12. He did not love his life even when faced with death. A dear friend of his named John Cardinalis, who was actually in Constance at the time, wrote a letter to Hus's friends back in Bohemia. Listen to what he said. He said, the goose is not yet cooked. His last name, Hus, means goose. That's actually where we get the expression from. Your goose is cooked. We get it from the life of Jan Hus. The goose is not yet cooked and is neither afraid of being cooked. Finally, on July 6th, 1415, after months of solitary confinement, they brought in the withered and wasted goose out of his cell and brought him into the cathedral. He went into the dungeon at 41, came out eight months later at the age of 81 because he was so withered and shrunken. And after giving him one last opportunity to recant his views, which he did not do, by the way, they proceeded to clothe him in his priestly garments and then one by one rip the pieces off his body as a way of shaming him, a symbolic way of removing him from the priesthood as a traitor. And they read the death sentence. They marched him out to the stake to be burned. A pile of his books and writings burning in the courtyard as he passed by as a symbolic act of what was about to happen to him. They put a paper dunce's cap on his head with drawings of Satan, led him out to the place of execution, which was known in that day as the devil's place because it was always filled with fire. Let me read to you an account of his death. It was midday. The prisoner's hands were fastened behind his back. and his neck bound to the stake by a chain. 
straw and the wood were heaped up around Hus's body to the chin and rosin sprinkled upon them. The offer of life was renewed if he would recant. He refused and he said, I shall die with joy today in the faith of the gospel which I have preached. Suit yourself. They lit the fire and as the flames arose, he sang twice, sang twice. Christ, thou son of the living God, have mercy on me. The wind blew the fire into the martyr's face and his voice was hushed. And there he died while praying and singing. And then when it was over, at insult to injury, they, and to keep anyone from using any part of him left over as a, as a relic, they scooped up his ashes in a little can and dumped him in the river, which is ridiculous. Because you can kill the man, but you cannot kill the truth proclaimed by the man. As he himself said, truth is the last conqueror. And because of what Christ has done, he who is slain shall win. The powers of the day thought they were putting an end to Jan Hus. By burning him alive, they put a crown on his head, a crown of glory on his head, and a chain, a gold metal chain around his neck, and they sent him home to glory where he is now enjoying Christ even as we speak. And I tell this whole tale of, of the life of Jan Hus, his life and death and impact, all because that brings us now to one very simple but profound implication for our lives. And the implication is this. Faith in what God has revealed is the answer to everything. There's my implication. Faith and what God has revealed is the answer to everything. His word, his holy, sacred, inspired, life-giving word and faith in this word is the answer to everything. The sins you can't shake, the struggles you can't beat, the unsaved people who won't get saved, children who won't come home, the word of God read and preached and proclaimed is the answer. There is nothing else. Faith in this word, this living and active word, sharper than any two-edged sword, is what gives us the power to preach to non-Christians and to those who think they're Christians. It is time, little flock. The time is now to recover our nerve as people of the living God who have nothing to be ashamed of. We have nothing to apologize for. The God of the universe has spoken and offers us eternal riches by faith in Jesus Christ. God has made a way to drink from the river of his delights through Jesus Christ. Therefore, we will not play the game of political correctness. We will not do that. Although gracious and loving, we will not bow to the LGBTQ or the transgender movement or the social justice movement, which is asking us to change our gospel or be silent, and we will not be moved. We will speak with tears in our eyes, but we will not be moved. See, faith in God's inspired revelation, truly believing that the living God has spoken through his word helps us as parents and as a church to raise the next generation of men and women and husbands and wives and fathers and mothers who love Jesus Christ as the treasure of their souls. Faith in this word is what helps us be 
a church, and a generation of new reformers. And by God's sovereign grace, that is exactly what we're going to be. Let's pray. Oh Lord, unashamed appreciation for this man who was a sinner saved by grace just like us. And yet, Lord, there was something that he saw. There was, there was something that he understood. Oh, Lord, your word was so real to him. What you had spoken was so real to him that he lived and died as though it were true because it is true. And Lord, we confess, we confess that we lack courage. We confess we are, as Yevi prayed, we are a distracted people. We confess, O oh Lord, that we have so many things pulling on our attention, and, and that's fine, and that's good, and you, you, are, you brought those things into our life, many of those things into our life, and, and yet, Lord, what I'm asking is for the kind of resolute, single-minded passion of men like Jan Hus and women like the mother who raised him. O oh Lord, help us to be these kinds of people, bold and compassionate, courageous and unflinching in our confidence in who you are and what you have revealed about yourself in the sacred text of Holy Scripture. Oh, Lord, let us be a new generation of reformers. In Christ's mighty name, we pray. Somehow, I do announcements, <laughs> but not completely unrelated. What's happening at the church is to equip us and help us be a new generation of reformers. Every fourth Sunday, we love to do theology seminars. We love to do equipping and training here. We believe that a theologically-minded church is a healthy church. You could be theological without being healthy, but you can't be healthy without being theological. So we do theology here. At the end of this month, we are uh, doing, uh, continuing a series on cults and false religions called The Gods Who Did Not Make the Heavens. Uh, this Sunday, we're going to talk about Mormonism and what it is that Mormons believe and, and how to reach them with the gospel. We're not merely interested in shooting shooting holes through what people believe, what we're really interested in is understanding what we may believe so that we may uh, most effectively reach people with the gospel. So that'll be whatever the fourth Sunday of this month is. We'll bug you again about the details, but fourth Sunday, there will be dinner here. So food, you get food and you get fed. What a way to go. And uh, that'll be a good time together. The, oh, it was on the screen, October 25th. There you go. Hey, uh, the, uh, again, I mentioned this before. Um, the staff and I, uh, Luke and Erica and myself, uh, we are in the process of, of crafting children's ministry, a rollout plan for children's ministry with the whole COVID debacle thing. That thing was on, on pause for some time. Now we are making plans to bring that back. Um, again, we, we really want to disciple and minister to our kids, and so that will be coming soon. So we are rewriting the script, and it's, it's really a lot of fun. So, uh, so here's the, the pitch to you. Not only are we going to have something for kids in the morning, uh, which is great news, but also, also this is really an opportunity uh, for you to make an impact for eternity. Jan, people like Jan Hus, uh, are, he's the exception. Right? He did kind of come from nowhere. Most people, most people who, who trust and treasure Christ, they don't come from nowhere. They are the byproduct of an entire church loving and investing in them with truth. And so uh, if you want to make that kind of uh, global eternal impact, and you should want that, there will be opportunities coming up very soon to, to be a part of children's ministry. I mean, I want people pouring into my kids' lives. I want people pouring the word of God into my kids' lives. I want that. And, and I know that if you have kids, you want that too. Because again, making disciples, th this is a church-wide movement, right? Parents are the ultimate responsible ones to raise their children, but, but making disciples, uh, the, the disciples are made in the context of the local church. So uh, be on the lookout. More news to come on this about opportunities to serve in children's really exciting stuff. Uh, can't wait for that. So we will keep you posted, okay? All right, well, that's it. Why don't you stand and for our benediction, we are going to sing the doxology.
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You're dismissed. We'll see you next week.